Hi, you're listening to Perpetual Learning. It's a podcast where we talk about great reads and listens that Sudhan uh, finds on the internet. And my name is Manjula Salvaraja. Hi, Sudhan. Hey, Manjula. And I'm Sudhan Siva. Now, uh, most people, I hope, know that the podcast is based on your newsletter. And you really had my attention with this enigmatic headline for the newsletter this time around, Elite Overproduction, <laughs> which, which when I read it, thought, well, first of all, it's a terrible title. But other than that, um, but it did pull me in, uh, which on reading I figured out was on the idea that there is this overproduction of elites um, by different systems in society, um, starting with schools as an example, and that that overproduction has these ripple effects, uh, which could potentially lead to the collapse of society. Okay, so we definitely need to talk this out. Um, so let's kick this off. Uh, tell me about the read that took you down this road. Yeah, it was an article by Peter Turchin from The Atlantic who explains how, you know, the idea of elite overproduction, which I'll define in a bit, and, you know, due to elite overproduction, um, you know, there's usually... It, this or there's this decline in living standards amongst the general population and the government can't cover its financial positions and what this gets at is basically you know there's a tendency for you know the society's ruling class you know across multiple countries societies however way you want to see it to grow faster than the number of positions for their members to fill ah uh, so so what you have happening um, actually, let me let me ask you this first, because I find that actually that quite the statement. What do you mean when you say society is overproducing elites? Like, what's your definition of the elite? Yeah, so, you know, let's take a tangible example, because I think it can be applied in a lot of different ways. You know, in Toronto, in finance, I'd say there's, you know, a lot of MBAs and a lot of CFAs in particular, almost to the point where you know, every position you can imagine in a bank um, has someone with a CFA as a, a one particular example. And, you know, there's so many people with these designations that we've essentially overproduced as a society or community um, in Toronto, right? We have, you know, certainly every single position that every single CFA does, does not require a CFA, right? And this eventually dilutes the overall power of these designations and now the article itself goes into the second order effects of that but at its core this is kind of the core like the actual problem so i'm interested in going down just a rabbit hole a little on that toronto centric thing you mentioned because i think that might actually be common to a couple of other urban centers in your experience in your network you're telling me that you see a lot of as an example, MBAs and, and CFAs, because you do have a financial role. Um, are there expectations the same, though, of, of, of that certification, um, you know, similar to what someone may have had maybe a decade or two decades ago? Probably not, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, A, no one really expects anyone to have a CFA or MBA. It's more so at least in my opinion, what your work background is more like. I think the MBA CFA helps filter people and perhaps, you know, correctly or incorrectly allows folks to kind of, you know, get into certain doors. But 
it, it's certainly, at least from the rules that I've seen, not a requirement anymore. So I'm not talking about the requirement, but actually the perception of the people that have the MBA or the CFA. Do right. you think that they still expect that this is going to open massive doors and, and perhaps have them, I don't know, running units or running companies? I think the perception is still there for yeah. sure, right? I think the way these schools brand themselves, the way the program is positioned, and obviously the investment required, right? Oftentimes, you know, two years full-time or several years part-time, um, you know, people are expecting to be able to make a significant change post-graduation. Uh, and and you're right. I mean, the schools marketed this way and, and they're also very expensive. And so this actually now is, I think I'm, this is all starting to, to make sense to me because what um, uh, in that article, Peter Turchin makes the case that that it's leading to this, what he calls the age of, of discord. How so? So, I mean, it's based on the premise that for every elite, let's say, who's able to kind of go through, you know, all these hoops and hurdles and actually secure a position that corresponds with their education or their background, there are now several counter elites, right? People who may have been brought up and educated the same way, but don't necessarily have the position to kind of satisfy that background. And so mm. if you specifically look at public revolts, you know, a lot of the folks that are involved here are mostly of the middle class college educated people, as an example. What, what do you think the role of, of social media is in all of this? Yeah, so I think social media helps galvanize people in a way that just didn't exist in the past, right? So I think the idea of serving the public before social media wasn't necessarily there, especially kind of within the elites. But now with social media, you kind of see a reversal of power where, you know, the public um, is able to kind of, again, galvanize people, right? And, and revolt against elites, whereas, you know, the power dynamic was quite different pre-social media. Isn't that interesting? Because, um, you know, when, one of the roles that I was thinking of is that it allows, uh, it allows um, comparisons uh, between you because it connects all of you and people broadcast their achievements. So it allows you to actually on a daily basis face comparison, but you make a really good point that, that also what it allows people to do sort of find each other. Yeah. Right? Um, that's, that's fascinating. Um, so let's get back to the, to the education system here. You know, give me a sense of the criticism that is being leveled uh, against the education system for, for its role in this, this overproduction idea. Well, I mean, going back to the MBA CFA example, right, you have a credential oriented higher education system that mass produces these so-called elites or credentialed people, let's call it, but there aren't necessarily a mass production of these jobs to correspond with, let's say, the MBAs, the CFAs that are consistently being churned out. And so when you're thinking about, you know, the overall policy being created, let's even take undergraduates as an example, you're creating surplus elites you know, who often become counter elites because they just aren't able to use their skills in a productive way. And so a smarter approach um, that, you know, Peter Turchin and, and, you know, kind of like the article kind of brings about is 
you know, to kind of keep the elite numbers small and ultimately keep the real wages of the general population on a constant rise, which, you know, if you look at, at an aggregate level, doesn't quite happen, right? It's quite the opposite, where the elite numbers tend to grow, but more importantly, the wage of those people tend to grow. And so people want to kind of continue training and, you know, feed into this mass production of producing elites um, without necessarily the jobs to correspond with that, right? And so you're fostering this entire generation that will ultimately resent the status quo because you have a lot of have-nots relative to each person that has uh, one of these rules, let's call it. You know, what is your sense for how it plays out in some of the, I mean, there's a lot of, I would say that there's a lot of um, revolts that are going on in so many different sectors um, around so many topics. People are gravi- gravitating towards topics and, and speaking out against things that they haven't done for decades. But how do you think that that this issue or this idea is co- uh, contributing to revolts or even, even radicalism? Yeah, so I think, you know, th- there's obviously, you know, a-, a lot of time and energy spent on this and, you know, perhaps the positive spin is, you know, you'll tend to see democracy kind of being benefited by this conflict, right? I think a lot of times, if you look at history, democratic societies tend to flourish because, you know, they kind of need to go through this existential moment where they're almost kind of being threatened by, let's say, an external enemy or an opposing force. And through that, you know, they're able to bring forth collective action And then that allows them to kind of bring forth policies that allow them to kind of transition to this next phase or stage in, you know, the society's life. And and that's essentially how democracy continues to survive, um, despite its obvious challenges as far as, you know, dealing with these revolts and, you know, potential radicalism. Oh, good God. Haven't we already had an external enemy? We've been fighting for two and a half years, the pandemic. (laughs) <laughs> um, oh, just uh, this is is actually quite quite interesting. Um, not yeah, this is this is fascinating. I haven't actually I've heard of you know, uh, there's a lot of thinking out there, especially when you when you follow um, technology as a beat uh, in media. There's a lot of thinking and and uh, experts that I've spoken to that cover radicalism and the role of technology it's not the only player but anyway you know that's that's a that's you can actually cover that as a beat you're just as a beat on its own sure but uh, but i i find this fascinating that this is sort of this other other and, and i have met a lot of people that i've come across a lot of people where they have degrees stacked uh you know a stack of degrees and i feel like what they're doing at that point um, comes nothing close to what their expectations were when they dished out money for, you know, an MBA and then whatever else that they piled on on top of that. So it's interesting to, to see this. On an ending note, what is Peter Turchin's idea of what the next decade could uh, could look like, given everything that he's laid out? Yeah, he kind of presents a couple of different views. So one is, you know, it's easier than ever before, as we talked about in the past, to organize and try to initiate change. However, Such the truth. second piece, sorry, is 
you know, given that there's no leader behind radicalism, you can't maneuver, right? So you can't really adjust your tactics. You don't have a leader um, who can actually present a united position and then negotiate with people in power, as an example. And so this mm -hmm. actually makes it difficult to execute change. So you have this you know, enormous power who in theory can make a lot of change, but because there's no head of the snake to call it, um, or you know, whatever you you whatever phrase you want to use, it, it's difficult to actually see through that change. And so you end up creating, and, and I think we've seen this over the past couple of years, a lot of noise, but not a lot of action that comes out of it just because of the way these revolts or or these organized change um comes about and so that i think will be an interesting trend to follow and see how that evolves over time it's interesting because um i feel like that's a thread that you see in movements on the extreme light uh, sorry, on the extreme left and also on the extreme right yeah isn't that interesting yeah the, absolutely you know the idea that there is frustration um, and that becomes action, but then it either dissipates um, or it just feels very like, what are you trying to achieve? Because there isn't a focus. It's not like here is exactly what we want done or what we're all focusing on, um, which is which is interesting. But I, I, I think I've seen it across the spectrum. Um, on both sides. Uh, that's fascinating. So then great topic. Um, talk next week. Absolutely. Thanks. All right. See ya.